following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. But we've worked through most of Genesis 1, now uh, looked at the six days of creation. And if you remember last week, we talked about creation as a temple. You remember this, those of you that were here? We talked about creation as this great big cosmic temple that we live in and, and God has placed us within. And God fills this temple with His presence. And so that means creation, the physical creation, is a space in which we can encounter the presence of God because it's sacred space. Precisely because it's filled with God's presence. And wherever God is present, that is holy ground. And so we're all standing and sitting on holy ground right now. And uh, hopefully you've learned and become a bit more aware of encountering God's presence in nature and creation and the animal kingdom and all these wonderful things God has made. These are all ways in which we can connect with God and then return praise to Him in worship, right? So then this morning, we get to what is really the apex of the creation story. The whole thing is like a big symphony, and it's been building and building and building to this great crescendo. And the crescendo is this passage today we're going to look at in Genesis 1. It starts in verse 26, and it's the creation of humanity. The whole story, all the way through so far, has been building and building and building to this. And so, because this is a passage about God creating humans... I thought that we would have the passage this morning read to us by a human. And so, Elaine Human is going to come and uh, read this passage. Come on up, Elaine. Yeah, no, this is for real. And so, and we organize this. And so, Elaine's going to come and read the passage. Genesis 1. If you've got your Bible, pull it out, start the app up, and Elaine will read the text for us. Thank you, Elaine. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay. Save. Thanks, Elaine. One of my favorite humans. Her husband, Neil, is my other favorite human. Okay. So the question we want to ask this morning as we reflect on this passage is simply... What does it mean to be human? Not what does it mean to be Elaine, but what does it mean to be human? What is the essence of our humanity? What's the essence of our personhood? That's the question this passage reflects on. And it's a question that 
has been answered in so many ways by so many people over so many centuries. Let me just give you a few examples. Uh, Richard Dawkins, we met him on the video a few weeks ago. He says, we are survival machines, robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. Immanuel Kant, the famous philosopher, man is an animal endowed with the capacity of reason. Uh, Plato, the great philosopher, man is a featherless two-footed animal with flat nails. That's very helpful. Thanks, Plato. Uh, and Shakespeare, this is a question Shakespeare wrestled with. And in Hamlet, he has Hamlet give this uh, soliloquy on human nature, and he says despairingly, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. And that's the question, isn't it? That's the question we're asking. That's the question we're wrestling with. What is this quintessence of dust? What are these creatures, these mortal, finite creatures we call human beings? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be us? What's the essence of our humanity, of our personhood? Uh, that's the question this chapter, this passage in Genesis 1 answers for us. Because in this description, as God creates human beings, we have in this passage the foundations of a Judeo-Christian worldview of humanity, the foundations of a biblical view of personhood, a, a biblical view of, of what it means to be human. Because God doesn't just make us, but he makes us in his image. That's so important. That little phrase, in his image, those three words in English, they are some of the most important words in the Bible. One of the most important phrases in the whole Bible, in his image. There is a world of meaning in those words. That one little phrase, it's loaded with theological meaning. It captures within those three words the essence of our humanity, our identity, our destiny, our role and purpose and function in the world. It's all there in that little phrase, in the image of God. It's incredibly important. And it sets the scene for human destiny through the rest of the biblical story on through to the new heavens and the new earth. So we want to unpack this. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? In Latin, the phrase is imago Dei. And I only use that because everything sounds cooler in Latin. So imago Dei, we'll use that a little bit for no particular reason, but image of God, that's who we are. And if we can answer that question, what does it mean to be image bearers? Then we will have answered the question, what does it mean to be truly and uniquely human? So to start off, I want you to think back to this temple image again, because I want to keep working with this. It's a powerful biblical image, the temple. You remember we talked about creation as a great, big, cosmic temple, like a cathedral that God inhabits. God's presence fills the temple of creation. Now, the Jews had a temple in Jerusalem. They had this temple and the presence of God dwelt there. But they weren't the only culture to have a temple. A lot of ancient cultures had their own temples to their own gods, their own pagan gods, and they would have these temples, these palaces, and they would believe these were the center of, of where their gods existed as well. And often what happened is in ancient cultures, they'd build a temple to their particular deity, and then once they'd constructed the temple, they would have this dedication ceremony. And during the ceremony, the very last thing to be brought into the temple with great ceremony and formality would be the image of the God, the image of this deity, the image of God. And it would often take the form of a shrine or a statue or some carving or engraving or whatever it was, and the statue, this image, would be taken into the, into the temple, and it would be given pride of place in the temple. And this 
image would represent the presence of that deity in that temple and supposedly the presence of that deity over whatever territory that deity happened to rule. Now, when you, when you hear this and you, and you hear that cultural background, can you already start to hear the significance of Genesis telling us that we are created in the image of God, that the one true God has made his temple and not just a, a physical temple in Jerusalem. He's created this cosmic temple and then in the crowning glory of his temple, he has placed his own image in the center of the temple. Not an image made of, of bronze or gold or wood or any other created material, but an image of flesh and blood, an image that's us, an image that is human beings. We are the living, breathing image of God, and God has placed this image in the center, pride of place, in this temple He's created and filled us with glory. And you can hear already, can't you, how much this speaks to the dignity and the glory and the value and the worth of every human person, that we would be given that pride of place, that we would be the crown jewel in God's creation, His image placed in the center of His temple. It's amazing. And this is so different to the way that other cultures thought about human beings. When you read these other creation stories that other cultures had, Egyptians and Babylonians and so on, human beings had such a meager place. They had such a measly little place in the whole order of things. Let me just read you one example. In the Babylonian creation myth, which is called the Enuma Elish, let me read you an extract of that that talks about the creation of human beings. It says, I will take, this is the Babylonian god talking, I will take blood and fashion bone. I will establish a savage Man shall be his name. Truly, savage man I will create. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. So you see, in that, in that creation story, human beings are just made to do menial labor so the gods can relax. We're just made for drudgery. We're made for servitude. We're made to do these lowly little tasks so the gods can sit back and relax and their life can be a bit easier. How different is that to Genesis 1? How different is that? to human beings in the center of this cosmic cathedral being created in the image of God. We are created with unbelievable dignity. And right at the beginning of the biblical story, this sets the Christian story apart from every other creation story out there, that human beings are invested with incredible value and God holds us in great esteem right from the beginning of the story. And so, what does it mean then for us to be made in the image of God. What does this image of God actually involve? Well, we get a little clue from verse 26. Have a look in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Do you hear the plural in there? This is one of very few times in the Bible where God refers to himself as an us and an our in the plural. And he does it in three concentrated times in one verse. So there's something significant going on here. And it takes you into the very nature of God. It takes you into the very identity of God that you've got here, the very first ingredient in what will become the doctrine of the Trinity. That God is a singular being, but he is in three persons. He's one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's what he means by us let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, together. Now, the names aren't all here. We have to read the rest of the Bible to get that, but there's a hint of it. Let us, 
make mankind in our image. And so you have this idea that at the beginning of the creation story and for eternity past, God has already existed in this community of love, Father, Son, and Spirit, with this reciprocal love flowing back and forth between the three persons of the Trinity, between Father and Son and Spirit, this community of love, this community of blessing, this community of life, this community of of, of selflessness is constantly existing. And so then what does it mean for that God to make us in His image? This God who is us, this God who, who refers to Himself as us, who is plural, who is three persons, this God who is fundamentally relational and social in nature, when that God makes us in His image, what does that mean? It means that we are fundamentally relational beings. At the heart of the image of God is one word, relationship. The image of God is not an attribute you possess. It's not a set of qualities that you possess. It's relationship. It's a set of relationships that we are designed to experience and to embrace. God is fundamentally relational. He's created us as relational beings. Relationship is in our DNA. We're hardwired for it. It's just part of our humanity. It's absolutely intrinsic to what it means to be human, that we exist not as solitary creatures. We're not created for isolation. We're not created for alienation. We're created for community. We're created to be in relationships. It's it's not about whether or not you're an introvert or an extrovert. It's not about being a party person. It's It's not about being an ENFP. This is about, you could be strongly introverted, and yet the the, the most strongly introverted person on the planet is still created at their core for relationship, connection, and community. It's at the heart of what makes us human. It's at the heart of the Imago Dei. Now, the question is, what relationships? Well, these relationships move in three primary directions. We're created for relationship and three types of relationships in particular. Let me just walk you through them. The first kind of relationship that makes up the image of God is relationship with God himself. If you look in verse 26, when God says, let us make mankind in our image, the word image is the Hebrew word selim, and it just simply means likeness or a figure or a representation and other words, other cultures had similar words to describe image. And, and very occasionally you find in the ancient world, in other cultures besides Israel, that the king will be described as being in the image of the gods. Only occasionally. You find it, for example, in Egypt, that the pharaoh, the king, he is in the image of the gods, in the sense that he's supposed to have this particular connection, this particular relationship. He's a particular representative of God on earth. But it's only ever said of the king. It's only ever something that applies to the ruler, the emperor, the king, right at the top of the whole social hierarchy. Never said of anyone else. And you can imagine how liberating it must have been in view of that, for people in the ancient world to read this and hear the story and hear that the one true God has created every single person in his image, not just the king at the top of the ladder, but every single person to the lowest beggar and peasant and slave, every single human being is created in the image of God because every single human person has an equal capacity for relationship with God. 
This is fundamental. Every single human person stands equal before God because every person has an equal capacity to have relationship and connection with God. It's why we're created for this personal relationship. And you see at the beginning of the biblical story that God's intention from the, from the word go is to connect with his human creatures, is to relate to his human creatures, is to have community, is to have connection. And this is at the heart of the image of God, is that we're created to know God personally, just as we are known by him, to love him just as we are loved by him, to have a personal communion and connection with God. That's at the heart of the image of God. It's at the heart of what makes us human. To be fully and truly human means to have this personal connection with God. We each have the capacity for that. It's been awesome over the last couple of Sundays. I've had some amazing conversations with people after church. We always have this opportunity for people to come and pray over here. And we have various conversations and prayer at various times. But these last two Sundays, these two guys, and they've given me permission to, to say this, to use their names, Jason and Francois, both of these guys, on two consecutive Sundays have made first-time decisions to commit their life to Jesus. It's amazing. It's fantastic. It reminds me why I do what I do. It reminds me why we exist as a church. This is what it's about. And these guys, and they've both been through struggles, and the struggles in some ways are continuing, but as the conversation progressed, they're just, their hearts were open. They're ready to step into this. They each prayed their own words from their heart, genuine prayer, handing their life over to Jesus. And to see that... I don't know whether you've had the opportunity to see this and to, and to be there in that moment where someone steps out of the kingdom of darkness and steps into the kingdom of light, to steps into God's family for the first time. And then Roland, our youth pastor, was telling me on, on Sunday afternoon, last Sunday afternoon, he went and visited a friend of his, and that person also made a decision to commit their life to Jesus. They'd called him up, wanted to talk, and they made that same commitment as well. Three people in the last week, through us, through our church, have become Christians, become followers of Jesus. It's amazing. Now think about that from the perspective of the image of God. What is happening when a person makes that decision to hand their life over to Jesus? What is happening? Well, they're becoming a Christian in one sense. Yes, that's true. But there's something more going on, isn't there? When you think this image of God idea... If relationship with God is central to being created in the image of God, what is happening when these people make a decision and hand their lives over to Jesus is they are becoming truly human in the fullest and deepest sense. I'm not saying they weren't human before. Every, every person is created in the image of God, regardless of whether they're a Christian, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, Buddhist, whatever. This is a human thing. It's not a specifically Christian thing. But... Having said that, if a relationship with God is at the heart of the Imago Dei, then when we step into that relationship, we are stepping into the fullness of our humanity. We're stepping into something that is deeply, deeply primal and original, and we're reclaiming and recovering this true humanity. We were created in God's image. And these guys, to pray with them is, is to see them become fully human, to receive back their lost humanity in a sense, because the image of God's been so tainted in our lives, hasn't it? Through sin, through our own turning away from God. It gets damaged. It never gets lost. It never gets abandoned, but it can be so marred and tainted. And when we enter back into that relationship with Jesus, we receive back our true humanity. That's why becoming a Christian is so much more than joining a club, so much more than joining a movement. It's more even than joining a church. It's recovering our lost humanity, and it's entering into the fullness of what it means to be truly human. 
That's why Jesus talks about being born again. It's like coming alive. It really is. It is a new birth. It is a new life. It is a new humanity. It's amazing to witness. So at the very heart of the Imago Day, at the very heart of the image of God, is a relationship with our creator, this creature-creator relationship. And every human person is created in the image of God because we each have an equal capacity for that relationship. But that's not all. It's not the only relationship that makes up the image of God. There's more. There's more going on. We're also created for relationship with one another. And this too is part of the image of God. Now look at verse 27 for a moment. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Can you hear the symmetry between those two lines at the end of that verse? In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Image of God, male and female. Image of God, male and female. It's interesting in Genesis 1 that male and female are described as being created together. In chapter 2, you get to the story of Adam and Eve, and there's one created before the other. But here, it's just a general statement of humanity, male and female together. Both image bearers, and both created to relate to each other. And when they relate to each other in healthy ways, in loving ways, in life-giving ways, they are bearing the image of God together. See, we don't just bear the image of God on our own. That's true, but that's not all. We also bear the image of God together. When we relate to each other well, we're bearing the image of God. It's not just male-female relationships, by the way. That's part of it. That's a big part of it. But it could be family relationships. It could be neighbor relationships. It could be school relationships. It could be working relationships. Whenever we relate to each other in ways that are healthy and loving and life-giving, we are imaging God. Because the logic of it is this, theologically, that God exists, Father, Son, and Spirit, in this community of love. And then whenever human beings relate to each other with love, we are imaging what is going on in the Trinity. We are imaging the Trinitarian love of God. It's, it's the Trinity is one of the most mysterious doctrines that we have, and yet it comes to its most visible expression when human beings simply love each other. And then we are giving expression to this mysterious, wonderful doctrine of the Trinity, just simply through loving and being loved. We image God together. We image God in relationship. I heard the story this week of a guy named Dwayne. And Dwayne was a drug addict, messed his life up, and then eventually got himself sober. And he was sober from drugs he wasn't using for 13 years. And then tragically, after 13 years, his wife died suddenly, and he spiraled down again. It just broke him. And he went back into drugs, back into using again. He lost his job. He lost other relationships. He ended up, lost his home. He was on the streets. He ended up in a homeless shelter. And that was the time in his life when he connected with someone from a local church. That church just happened to have a grief recovery ministry for widows and widowers. And so Dwayne got connected into that ministry and met some people and started on this journey to recovery. And as part of that journey, Dwayne met Jesus. He gave his life to Jesus and started to grow as a Christian started to get his life back on track, started to allow God to take all these broken, fragmented pieces of his existence and start putting them back together, including his relationships with his family, which had become really, really messy. Well, sometime after that, sadly, Dwayne contracted cancer, and after a battle with cancer, he passed away. And then came Dwayne's funeral. 
And at the funeral, all Dwayne's family are there, including three other brothers that he had. And, and these relationships between the brothers and the brothers and Dwayne, they were all messed up. There was so much tension and estrangement there. And one of the brothers gets up at the funeral and starts talking about Dwayne. Starts talking about how in recent days, recent times, Dwayne had just started the process of kind of reconciling with him, moving back towards him, just thawing the ice that had been in that relationship for a long time. And he talked about how good this was and how powerful it had been and how much he hoped that that could have continued. Well, then he sat down and one of the fiancés of the other brother stands up and she says, righto, you guys, no more mucking around. It's time for reconciliation. It's time to, to finish what Dwayne has started. And she said, I want you three brothers to stand up right now. And this actually happened in a funeral. She said, I want you three brothers to stand up right now. And I want you to embrace one another right here and now. And there, you can imagine, there was awkwardness and kind of nervous laughter and people are crying. Nobody quite knew what to do. But these three brothers from different areas in the room stood up, walked over to each other and embraced each other as brothers because of what Dwayne had started, what God had started in his life. And the pastor who was taking that service said he'd never seen such a display of, of unity among human beings as he saw in that funeral. And you think, what's happening there when those three brothers embrace together is a little mirror image of the love that exists at the very heart of God. The love, the, the forgiveness, the reconciliation. It, they're imaging. They're imaging God. Not a specifically Christian thing necessarily, but they're image bearers. And they're imaging the triune love of God. And that might be close to home for some of you. You might be in those kinds of relationships or out of those kinds of relationships that have gotten frosty and icy and slightly estranged. Maybe it's been estrangement over years. Maybe it's just a relationship that's gotten icy because of something that's happened and there's just some weirdness there and you're not sure where they're at and they're not sure where you're at. And I want to ask you, what, what does it mean for you to be an image bearer in that relationship? What does it mean for you to look at them as image bearers? What does it mean for you to look at their humanity? What would it mean for you to cross the divide? For you to walk across the room and shake the hand? Or catch up? Or send the text? Or maybe embrace? See, when, you, when you're willing to do that, when you're willing to take the hard step, take the foot, even when you don't feel like it's deserved and you don't feel like they're not entitled to this and there's been this hurt and you don't understand and there's so much wrong done. I get all that. But when you're willing to take the first step and cross that divide, you are imaging your creator. You are expressing something that is at the very heart of God and you are becoming what? Human. You're becoming a little more human when you can let the ice thaw a little bit in that relationship. You're getting in touch with something deeply human in line with your created intent and your created destiny, becoming a little more human. So relationship with others is absolutely central to the image of God. But that's not all. There's a third relationship that makes up this thing called the image of God. And it's a relationship with the world. It's this broadest level at which we experience the relationship, uh, the image of God. And uh, this is all through the text. This is a dominant theme in this passage, both before and after God creates us in his image. God kind of gives us this mandate. He gives us this commission. 
And there's two words in this passage that sum up what this commission involves. The first is in verse 26, and it's the word rule over. God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and so on. The idea of rule over, it means to be God's vice rulers. It means to exercise authority over the world. It means to, to take charge. We're given this mandate. We're given this authority over God's created world. It doesn't mean we have authority to abuse. It doesn't mean we have authority to exploit. It means our authority should mirror God's authority and the way he exercises authority, which is with love and with kindness and with compassion. But it's an authority that we are God's vice rulers over this creation, over this world that he's created. And then the second word in this commission is over in verse 28 where God says, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. The word subdue, it has the sense of uh, cultivating or domesticating or civilizing. It's the idea of taking something that's, that's chaotic, that's unformed, that's disordered, a bit like tohu wabohu that we looked at a few weeks ago. Something that's chaotic, that's got no, 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 no sense of life to it and bringing life, bringing order bringing something good out of it. It's like taking a wild field and tilling the ground and cultivating the soil and planting crops so that those crops can support human life. That's the idea of subduing. Again, not abusing, not exploiting, not dominating, but taking care. It's the idea of being God's vice creators, continuing to create. You get this idea when you put these two words together. You read this commissioning that God gives us. You get the idea that creation is a dynamic project. You know, we sometimes think of creation in the beginning as this very static place, almost a very sterile place, like a hospital. You know, God creates this perfect world. Everything just works perfectly, and God puts us in the middle of it, and we just kind of, Adam and Eve, just sit around, lazing around, watching the animals, you know, and there's just nothing really to do. But when you read this mandate God gives humanity, you get the sense creation's going somewhere. It's a project. God started it. He's kicked it off, and now he looks at us and says, right, off you go. Carry on. Creation's good, but it's not yet complete, and intentionally so. God's created a world that is good, but it's not finished yet. It's not finished yet. God's intention was for the whole earth to become Eden, the whole earth to become the Garden of Eden. He's saying, I've started something. I want you human beings to continue and carry on as my vice rulers, as my vice creators. Continue bringing life, continue bringing community out through, through the world, continue bringing family into the world, uh, bring culture into the world, bring community, bring civilization and order. I want you to carry on. I want you to bring shalom, peace, flourishing, wholeness right throughout the world in every single area of life. I want you to pursue the arts. I want you to create music. I want you to create literature. I want you to create great artwork. I want you to pursue the sciences. I want you to explore and investigate. I want you to build stuff. I want you to create stuff. I want you to explore relationships and human psychology. I want you to do all. I want you to continue working and, and moving forward and bringing order and bringing life. It's like God has ordered the cosmos and now he wants us to order the world. He says, I want you to take this world I've made. Bring order, bring life. I want you to bring civilization. Don't dominate it. Don't abuse it. Don't exploit it. But you bring life, bring wholeness, and keep on doing it. It's a dynamic project that carries on and on and on. And it continues today as we take seriously this mandate to be God's image bearers in the world. It looks like so many different things. 
I was in contact on Friday with a guy I know, Mark, and uh, he's being an image bearer in New Zealand courtrooms right now. He works for an organization called Talking Trouble. And they, it's a very new thing in the New Zealand legal system. They provide communications assistance for vulnerable defendants and witnesses in New Zealand courts. And he said to me, he texted me, 60% of people in the, in the, who go into a court for as a witness or as a defendant, 60% have an identifiable oral language problem, disorder. In other words, they've either got a problem expressing themselves clearly, articulately, or they've got a problem understanding what is being said to them by the judge, by lawyers, and so on. And then you put them in this overwhelming experience environment of a courtroom, a legal courtroom, and it's, it's chaos, and people are saying the wrong things, or they don't know what to say. These are vulnerable people. And so Mark and Talking Trouble are coming along, and Mark's there in courtrooms, off, very often with young people, and he is helping. He's an intermediary between them and the judge. And so when things are being said to them, Mark's interpreting, He's literally got a whiteboard there sometimes. He's sometimes drawing pictures. He's doing whatever he needs to do to help them understand and process what is being said to them. And then he is working with them to help them clearly and articulately express what they want to and need to say in the courtroom. It's a great example of someone being an image bearer. He's taken a situation that can be chaotic, at least in the experience of that vulnerable person, and he's bringing some order. He's bringing some life. He's expressing the image of God. And you know the other thing he's doing? He's restoring the image of God. Because in our context, it's different to Genesis 1, isn't it? Now we live in a world of sin, where the image of God is broken and twisted and perverted. And part of our role now as image bearers is to look for those people and those places where the image of God's being lost, or it's being damaged, or it's being neglected, and to restore it, to draw it out, to give back dignity where that needs to be given. Now, it doesn't always have to be in these big ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be in those kinds of professional ways. It can be in the smallest of things. Simply by bringing some order into your home, in your family life, just taking the tohu wabohu that exists in your home, right? There's plenty of that. And bringing some order, bringing some life, bringing truth and beauty and God's love into your family environment. You are being an image bearer in your own home with your own children. When you create music or artwork or you construct something, you're being an image bearer. You could be an accountant in an organization and by bringing good financial management and good practices and procedures, you are bringing some order and integrity into the financial workings of that organization. You know, that is bearing the image of God. Even accountants can bear the image of God. It is possible. In any sphere of life, you might work with children, could be an architect, nurse, stay-at-home mum or dad, whatever. You can be an image bearer in whatever place, in whatever space God has put you, simply by asking, how can I express and restore the image of God in those around me? How can I bring some love, some life, Truth, beauty, goodness, kindness, justice, it's all wrapped up in that word shalom. How can we bring some of that, a taste of that, into the brokenness, broken lives of people around us? That's being God's image bearer. So as you go through your week this week, think about these three relationships that make up who you are as an image bearer of God. Relationship with God, your relationship with others, and then your relationship more broadly with the world around you. And I want to ask you to do two things. First of all, see if you can find the image of God in others. 
Before you think about your own life, just look around. Because again, the image of God is not a Christian thing. So don't just think it's just us here in the room. The image of God is a human thing. So you can see it in anyone. Pick the person you struggle with the most. And ask yourself, where can I see the image of God in them? What is it about them? How can I learn to see their true humanity? Where can you see the image of God on display around you? And then ask, how can I embody the image of God more deeply, more truly? How can I become a little more human in my life? What's, what's the relationship of those three? What's the one God's pressing on you today? What's the one he's pressing the most and saying, hey, here's an area to, to grow in here. There's an area I want that relationship Relationship with him or relationship with some other people or or your role as an image bearer in the world. He's saying, I want that relationship to go a little deeper for you. Press into that, lean into that, pursue that. What step do you need to take to embody the image of God a little bit more in your life, in your family, in your business, in, in your neighborhood, in your world? The church father Irenaeus said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Or truly alive. We've used the quote many times before, sure, and it's a good one. That God has placed us as his image bearers, given us pride of place in this temple he's created. He's filled the temple with glory, and then he fills our lives with glory. And so may we learn what it means to live in a way that is fully alive, not half alive, but fully alive. May we learn to express and embody the image of God by growing deeper in relationship with God, loving each other even when it hurts, being image bearers in the world. And may we learn and experience what it means to be truly and fully human, human beings created in the image of God. May we do it all for His glory, not ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unspeakable privilege of being created in your image. Thank you, God, for the dignity that you have given us. And we pray that you would help us to see ourselves as you see us. God, there's some here that have lost sight of their own identity as your image bearers and who can't see much of that value much of that dignity and that worth. And I want to pray this morning, God, just gently and quietly by your Spirit. You would just take off the blinds and help them to see themselves as you see them. So loved, so valued, so worthy, because they are stamped with the Imago Day, stamped with your image. God, we pray this week you'd lead us to, towards those who we can restore the image of God in them those who are broken, those who are hurting, those who are lonely. God, help us to do what we can to restore the, the image of God in the lives of others. God, where there's relationships that are fractured, help us to step across the divide, across the boundaries, across whatever iciness there is, God, and, and show love and be willing to forgive and receive forgiveness where that needs to happen. God, help us to be image bearers in that way. And God, help us more than anything to grow closer to you, Jesus. Because, Jesus, in you, we see the one true image of the Father. Jesus, you are the image. You're the image. And we thank you that as we come to know you, we are being transformed now into your image with ever-increasing likeness. So keep that work going in our lives, Father. Keep transforming us. Keep growing us into your image. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.